0: Okay, so uh, this is a a good opportunity for me to have a reunion with an old, old friend I, I literally haven't seen in what must be a decade. So, this is Unstandardized English. I am your host, Dr. J.P.B. Gerald, and on this episode, episode 104, we are going to be talking to Irene Rute. Irene was my friend in college. She was a year behind me at Princeton, and um, she was real chill and cool, and then we, like most people, lost touch because she moved to here and I moved to there, and we both lived in New York in, in the early 2010s, and the last time I saw her, I was running, and she was in a taxi, and she's like, hey, I saw you running. That's pretty much the last time I saw her, and I believe that was... It's got to be 2012, actually, because that's when I started running. Um, Anyway, so uh, she's now a doctoral candidate in Michigan, and she writes about forced migration and refugee resettlement. Since I live in New York, uh, and there's a whole lot of refugees here, it'll be an interesting topic to discuss. All right? All right. So... If you're interested in supporting the show on Patreon, the link is there. And uh, I I really do have some news for you. I didn't win that book prize, by the way, I now know. But I do have news for you about um, upcoming books, more books. Uh, it's not fully confirmed in the sense that it's happening, but I don't have the contract yet, so I'm not going to say it on here. But just so you know, there will be two more books coming from me, and I'll tell you about it once I have the contracts, probably by the time I record my next episode, but if not, in the one after that. All right. So the, the little, sorry, the little um, recording device I use, which makes the transcripts and the recording at the same time, sometimes it just doesn't start for like 30 seconds. And I always forget that. So the first 30 seconds of this conversation is cut off. I will say this is my friend, like I said earlier, Irene Route. He works on, I said this in the intro too, um, refugee resettlement and particularly their experiences of racialization as well as their um relationship to their natural and built and constructed environments that's what i said before it got cut off. well no before it got cut on so anyway here's the conversation it's pretty short we both were pressed for time so it'll be a shorter episode than usual but you'll you'll be okay all right
1: i mean um working around latin america crossing the border um being stopped and detained by ice and then released to um, a sponsor. Um, so a lot of my work around that kind of led to the questions I had, um, going into the PhD program, which is really, we rely so much on thinking about how, um, like social circles and social relationships are kind of the base of, um, community and individual, um, well-being. Um, but when those are absent or they've been broken, um we very rarely think about how people are in relationship with their actual physical environment um so their natural environment and physical environment and uh, our built environment and so a lot of my questions have to do with um yeah like how do people walk through the world and see themselves in relationship to the spaces that they're in and how does that impact um kind of their sense of self and um And then the added part of when we place race and gender on top of um, how people interact in different spaces, how does that then impact their well-being? So that's kind of what I'm doing in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) I love how academics will say things for like 45 minutes, like, here's a nutshell. Um, But (laughs) it's a pretty interesting, I I do the same thing. it's interesting as a as a day to do this. It's the first day of school here, um, in the New York City DOE. And of yes, course there's okay. a lot of refugee students here, um, right now who are having their first day of first day of school period um in New York. Right. So there's a lot of people, especially in my neighborhood, because where I live there's I said I said this to you in email, but people listening don't know this. Um, I live near a lot of hotels and a lot of them, especially in their, during the pandemic, like there's nobody in the hotel. Right. So they turn a lot of them over. Um, Some of them have gone back to being hotels because, you know, people came back. But still, it just means it's a really, you know, and then the neighborhood is a lot of where I live in Long Island City. I mean, you know where that is. People listening to us only know where that is, right? And there's a lot of warehouses, too. So it's just a sort of weird open area, but it's also a lot of high rises, but there's also a lot of hotels. It's kind of strange moving next year. But um it's something that I think about, you know, with my son starting 3K today, um, he's not really changing school. He's been in the same place he was in daycare. So the only thing that changed is like who's getting the money. Um but I don't know, I think about those kids a lot because and I know you know you, you, you've worked more recently with with African uh students or children, I guess, um, but these are from Latin America. And I don't know, I just think about how many people have Whatever opinions they have of people who are coming here and how when you see them in the playground, they're just doing exactly the same thing as my son is doing, you know, jumping on the the swings and everything. And I think about how they're being constructed a certain way in people's imagination. And then as soon as you take a moment to look at who they really are, they're in some ways, like everybody else, and in some ways, actually very different because of their experiences. So anyway, that's just my first reaction to, you know, when I think about these things, and on a daily basis, when I see people cross my path, we're in these situations.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're, they're just kids. um, But yeah, the social constructs that people place on youth, and I think what is so, like, heartbreaking to me about and why I think that I'm so passionate about working with youth is that I think as an adult, you you know, like over time, hopefully you have like you begin to kind of have this like critical reflection and can, kind of like ask questions and then like figure out answers of why you're being treated a certain way or why that you're experiencing um, life in a certain way. But it's really like youth young children, young kids, like, how are they, you know, I I mean, I remember even from, like, my own experience of, like, not understanding, like, race, racialization, and then reading, like, Du Bois for the first time at college, like, you finally get the language that you need to express your experience in a certain way, and so I think when we are looking at different, you know, kids, like, especially new to the country, trying to figure out what this landscape is, if they don't have, like, the words or adults kind of, like, sharing, like, these are why – this is why, like, certain things are happening or this is why your, like, life experience looks like this, um, it then becomes kind of a denial of, like, their own humanity and, like, what is that doing to, like, um their ability to think that they're somebody or <laughs> they deserve anything. So, um yeah, I think those constructs are – I place so quickly um, on families, but definitely children as well.
0: You know, it's really the. I think about what this is taking a step back. It's one of the things I've noticed since I've gotten to a different place in my career where, like, I'm able to sort of plan things a little bit more long term, right? And obviously, it's very fortunate position to be in and I notice now when I'm in that position and my wife as well like um I can see how people get more reactionary because things start to 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 be offered to you where you could easily take the more reactionary path for it right like I'm not going to become an MB but I can see how it might happen this is not me excusing that I'm just saying I can see the path right? You know, you see the choices in front of you, and you say, well, if I chose that, it would reinforce these structures, right? And I try to obviously 100%, you can't do it 100% of the time, because sometimes you don't have a choice, but um, it's very easy to see the way that people, even people who wouldn't see themselves as being exclusionary are incentivized to be so, you know, um, incentivized to hoard, whether it's literally money or just space or time or whatever, because you know, there is an instinct, you know, when you have a three-year-old just like, well, I don't want his experience to be affected by others too many people. You know, like, I'm not saying I believe this. I'm saying I can see how it happens, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's a function of for the systems we live under, and some of it is not even just an American or capitalistic thing, you know. um, Literally, if there are more people in a smaller space, it can be a challenge. And I think fighting against that as a person who is in a position where I can see why people would, you know, make that choice but uh am trying not to do so myself It's another thing to be where they don't even have many choices at all, or in the sense that the only choice they could possibly make was to get out of what was a terrible situation. Um, and then, you know, you think about, like, I think, well, that seems like they're in a really hard situation now, but then you think about how bad things must have been for them to say, But even though, you know, they're not unintelligent, they're well aware of what it might be like here, even though they may not know personally, they're still like, no, but I'm still doing that. (laughs) Like, like they'll do all this to do this, you know?
1: Yeah. Like the amount of pain and suffering that someone is going through that causes them to completely uproot themselves from their home and their culture and their language and, yeah, their family. So, yeah, it's not a, a decision taken lightly, which I think is the narrative, like, oh, people are just coming over here. Um, <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, it's not like me, you know, moving to Korea when I was 21. When And even that, I didn't feel like I took lightly, because it I had moved to the other side of the world, right? But it wasn't like, I didn't have a whole lot of risk. Mm-hmm. So that's really what it is. Yeah. Um, I don't think like the plane wasn't going to crash. So, you know, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, when I think about people, so now I think about teachers, right? You know, and sometimes, yeah, some teachers are hateful or whatever. And some people are just dealing with sort of a lack of awareness, but I, I think back to the way teachers are trained, and you could say this for social workers and everything, my research is in education, so, um, and I think about how, not only is the language barrier, which is an issue, but like, that's not what I'm talking about, Um, but like, the only research, and you know this, is so often done either on majoritized populations, but if, or if it's on minoritized populations, it's this weird top-down paternalistic thing, and so you so rarely hear from the people themselves, um, and then there's the fact that, and this isn't this, this next thing I'm going to say isn't really teacher's fault that like. If there happens to be a nugget of valuable research that's done on these populations, well, then they put it deep inside of a journal nobody's ever going to (laughs) read. So, like, the teachers don't have time to go do that. And I'm not blaming the teacher for not having time to go find something inside of a journal that they can't even afford to open because they're only given access to whatever. So that's another part of the system, which, again, is not an American thing, but an academic thing that makes this so much harder. One of the reasons I do some of the work that I do is because I'm trying to give voice specifically to, like, neurodivergent students of color, um, not my job, my just side academic career because my main job is in academia, but um because there isn't really any directly from the people, right? And so ultimately, statistics are useful in some to some extent, but you know, the stories are what have carried us since we've since humans became humans. And so yeah,
1: no, I always am questioning, I mean, i like being a software group before going back to into academia I was like I never read an evidence-based article to inform my practice like ever and uh, so I'm like what is my research actually going to do and um or like where is it available like what yeah so those questions I think are so important and um yeah I think like more people who are like doing research with the idea of Really drawing on experience and narrative, um, and kind of like how that, um, informs policy, um, is where it's at. <laughs> or where it should yeah, be. Yeah, I mean, you know, it
0: becomes a conundrum and I always end up talking about this on my show, but as part of the reason why I do the show, right, is because like, not that there's a lot of people listening to this, but I'll tell you, the couple of hundred people who listen to me when I do this is still a lot more than read some of those articles. <laughs> so like, I remember, and I've said this on the show before, I I, uh, I wrote an article, and it was published, or it was at, at this point that I'm speaking of, it was about to be published, and um, I went to a conference, and I presented on it, and it's a pretty well-attended presentation, it was like 35 people in that room, right, and then I put it on here, and it was like 350 people, so it was literally like 10 times as many people, like 350 is not that many, but it's still a lot more than than that, you know, and You know, it's also, you can get into the way things are written. But then you they'll they'll tell you, they will tell you that, like, well, you, you know, this can't get into any sort of publication or any sort of public place unless you go back and talk about all the other research, right? But then all the other research isn't really all that applicable because it's not about the people you're talking about or it's really deficit based on the people you're talking about. So now you have to give either additional citations to people you really don't want to, or you have to rely upon research that simply does not truly apply to the people that you're talking about. And first of all, it makes your argument weaker because you're like standing on a faulty, you know, foundation. And, and, uh, but if you don't use it, they won't publish it. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you do? Yeah. No, I, um, do you,
1: Publish things open access, or? Well,
0: the interesting thing, not to get into my entire academic, you know, deal, is that by chance the first one was open access. I, it wasn't necessarily what I was trying to do, but that the, the journal that I was publishing in was open access, right? But that article was like two pages long um then the second one i was like i would like to try to make it open access so, so i found another one that was and it was published and i do think a big part of the reason people started paying attention to me that name is because they could read it like you could get it because it was just on the internet and then since then you know i got a book deal i wrote a book and everything so now i, I really don't care about journals so i only write in journals if, if like my friend is editing it and is like please write for me and then i'm like sure I'll do that, but if it's behind the paywalls, I'm just like, here's the journal article. If you want to read it, just email me. I'll send it to you. Um, because I don't think, like, I feel like if it's in a book, yeah, yeah, you should buy the book. Like, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, if it's if it's not accessible, don't, it's like a tree falling in the forest, right? It's just like what what was the point? It's just for your CV, you know. I can see that there are things. That are, that were like, you could, you know, the way some movie directors will do like one for them, one for me, right? They're like, I'll do this blockbuster and then I'll do this thing that I care about, right? So it's like, maybe I'll write a journal article to be about my CV and then I'll do something, but like, unless, cause again, it's not my primary job, unless you have all the time in the world. it takes a long time to write these articles. I write quickly, but to get them through the process, it still takes, you know, forever. The only reason my second article, and like a lot of this was timing, and that's the thing that you can't control. My second article came out in May of 2020, right? It's an article about racism that came out in May of 2020. I didn't write it then, but it came out then, right? And I couldn't control the timing of that. The only reason it came out so quickly is because we were in lockdown and I'm to do. So I was just editing it really fast. I mean, I had a job, but like when I wasn't at work, what was I going to do? So again, a lot of that's just timing. And I got you know, lucky, I guess. And I, I think about that when people ask me for, like, what do I do? I'm like, well, I can tell you what I did, but I can only tell you what I had control over, which was mostly not what I was doing. Because I do think the open access thing is really important, especially. But then there's the, you know, you can get really philosophical about it, right? Because to me, the people who don't actually care about these people, they're not going to read it anyway, mm-hmm. or they're not going to listen. Right. right they might read it if they're you know assigned well, that's why I think it's important for these things to become a part of the training yeah. you know someone's becoming a social worker or a teacher you got to get it in there because if they're in school then they're going to have to read certain things
1: yeah Yeah, it's true something I also like to to help me survive academia is I've been really reorienting myself from um, just thinking about like products so dissertation articles books to process and so like I have like reformulated kind of like I mean I've always been kind of like organizer, like very focused on community based partnership. But thinking about um or I've been using um participatory action um framework as like my methodology and thinking about so yeah like the research I like I mean the end goal of the research is to like do some type of action um that's agreed on by participants but and like you know create some articles get like you know something out there but I actually am like I love the process like I love being able to bring people together and um kind of like create this container which is the research but it's actually like you know to some people it might just be like Oh, it's a way that we're gathering, we're building group, we're like being able to talk about certain things that are coming up for us like the actual process of research I'm trying to like really connect to to make it more more rewarding and more kind of like connected to my values and ideals rather than this kind of like assembly line of like like pumping out articles, pumping out like the things that then I feel like ours is so um. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so kind of going from process to product um, is kind of where I'm orienting myself more more recently.
0: Yeah, I think that – so when I started my doctoral program in 2018, you know, you're in a cohort, right? And my degree was an EDD in instructional leadership. And, you know, you're meeting people, and everybody's got, like, different research interests, which is fine. This help cohorts are, right? Um, I like them. I I don't have a problem with them. But, um, you know, I'm just like, well, I didn't quite know what I was going to do. This whole, like, focusing on, like, the intersection between, like, racism and language teaching was not what I intended to do. I was a language teacher, but it really wasn't my plan. Uh, Just just kept showing up, and I was like, well, you follow the the information, right? Um, So, anyway, as I was coming to this realization, I went to talk to the dean, and he said, well, you know, you can go meet people in various places online. I'm like, seriously? Like, the internet? And I'm like, all right, fine. So I did. And, you know, it's part of the reason why I started this podcast. But the value I get, I'm glad when people listen to it because people do seem to actually like hearing these conversations. But to me, like, for example, some of my next projects, which, again, now that I'm not, like, a full-time academic, I'm doing it because I want to. And um. I called upon, I just emailed everybody yesterday for, to gauge their initial interest in participating in the next books I'm working on. Um And everyone who responded said yes, but I knew they would because they're people I'd already talked to about these things. Mm-hmm. Right. So I now have this list of 45, 50 people that I can kind of call on where they'll be like, yeah, we can have a conversation about this. Sure. I'm going to use the conversation, you know, obviously once permissions and so forth in the work that I'm doing because then maybe people are going to have conversations afterwards, which every time I finish something, I tell people, this: what you need to do is just have these conversations. Not just that, but I think that, especially like with my dissertation and things like that, which is also, that one's open access because it's a q and dissertation, and those are all open access, right? So they're just on the internet. But um, my whole point is that I just started reaching out to people whose work I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. and most people will respond to you especially the kind of work that we're doing, they're going to be interested in community, right? So I now, not that I'm like best friends with all the luminaries, because people are busy, but, you know, and obviously the timing of everybody being more comfortable being online the last three years, so that sort of helped. But, like, I now feel like that, the fact that I have this network, and I'm like in a Rolodex way where people do me a favor, per se, but will participate in in these conversations. I know that my skills aren't really in let's say organizing, because I, I, I'm i pretty just not very organized, but, uh, you know, I know what I'm good at, right, which is writing and talking, and I'm like, how can I make that valuable for the public? And to me, to go on what I was saying before, there's people who aren't going to listen, but to me, my audience, the goal, yes, there's people who already agree with me who just like hearing what I have to say, and that's great. I'm not denigrating those people, but there's this big group of people in the middle who kind of vaguely agree, but don't really know what to do,
1: right?
0: Right? And, like, they're a little bit hesitant because they're worried they don't want to screw up, Mm -hmm. you know, or they've tried and it was hard, and they they just, and, and again, they're not trying to uphold the system, but then, of course, if you're not really doing anything, you are upholding the system, which is, and then there's the thing, which I said both in my dissertation and I think in the book also, which is, an unavoidable thing, which is that once you have these realizations, if you aren't literally on day one of your career, it means you've been doing bad things. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and you can't undo it. Mm-hmm. Already happened, okay. right? Um, you know, one of the things, like, I thought that by being a black language teacher, I was doing something different, which in factual sense, yes, because there's not that many, but, like, I was still upholding, in this particular case, language ideologies that were harmful to the students. They did, no one was upset. Like, the, the point is it was under the surface, right? And I look back, and I, you know, part of the reason I do the work I do is that I, it's because I can't go back and undo it. So I'm trying to make it so that if somebody gets a chance to read the stuff or listen to the stuff that I'm doing before they get out there, right. you know, I want this to be – used, I, there are people, professors who've used my work in their class, so hopefully it impacts people. I taught, I taught, I adjuncted a class this summer for speech language therapists and for language teachers who, you know, aren't quite in the field yet, and I think that that's it, because ultimately, and I use this phrase a lot, what I'm doing, unfortunately, if you're putting it in journals and it's not for people who are, like, literally on day one, it's all backfill. Right. Like in a construction project, like the thing is already built and now you're just filling in the hole. Okay, but what about the structure that's already built up in the person? Mm -hmm. Right. And then the structure becomes a muscle memory thing where like if pressed for time. And understandably, teachers and social workers and other people in these professions are going to be pressed for time. You know, you're just going to rely on what you your muscles remember. And the muscles are going to remember the system as it is and it is painful to retrain your body.
1: <laughs> it takes a long time. No, I I love what you said about kind of, like, having this past that you're like, oh, like, maybe that's a little cringy, and, like, I'm at a different place now, and how do I reconcile with that? Because I think so many people, you know, as they go through their career, whether in academia or in other spaces, like, we're held to be experts, Whatever that means. And then it's like, oh, I don't have the space to actually reflect on, like, not, yeah, like reflect on or like hold that change and like that I have changed as a person. My research has changed. Like, it's okay that my thoughts have changed. Like, I think that people get so in this, like, I am this one entity and I'm this expert. And so I am not able, I'm not allowed to change either. And um, so yeah, I think these spaces where you can talk through that is so important. Um, that, yeah, people don't really have that space, so.
0: And it's, it's hard because first of all, this is off the cuff, right? This is not, I, mean, I didn't like script this or anything like that. And all these things, like I sure, if I went back to the beginning of my podcast, which is now four years ago, there'd be things I say and I'd be like, no, I don't know about that one. <laughs> um and like, I guess I could delete it. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about anything egregious or anything like that, right? But like, there's things where like, I hadn't read certain things yet. I hadn't had these, thi- I'm learning from these conversations. It, it is something that I will note that like all of whatever I end up writing, like the next thing that I write, and I don't actually have I'm not writing any of the books for a few months, but like the next thing I write is going to contain some nuggets that I gain from this and other conversations. Um, cause they're in there now and I, and I value the time that people give me on this show. So I, I'm trying to pay attention. And I, I'm not saying i have there's never been, I'm not saying there's never been a conversation where I haven't been like, I don't know, I didn't like that one, but I still leave that conversation up there. Cause again, it's not like egregious stuff, but it's things where I'm just like, I don't know about that. But the point being, I think people get a little scared, especially when they're working on you know, trying to, to, to challenge things. You know, what we were just talking about. You say something in 2019, now it's 2023, and you're like, huh. And there's the like, I don't really want to put myself out there, not just in the moment, because pe- you're everyone's gonna, everyone's to to deal with the fact that people may not have something you're saying in the moment. But then it's like, what if you get a little bit older, and you look back and someone's sort of calling you out for something that you kind of disagree with. And, like, you know, at this point I'd be like, yeah, I kind of agree with you. I should have done better back then, but I didn't know X, Y, and Z. And that is a little bit scary because, like, there's things that I was sourcing where I look back and I'm like, yeah, I should have used a different source for that. You know, Um, but the article's there. And I hope that that's why it's important to try to create a, a body of work, you know, a breath. So that people can see an evolution and it can be something of a model for people because, you know, there are people sometimes where I do get a little frustrated with academics sometimes. And just for the reasons I already said, because sometimes academics, you know, live on planet academia and, you know, and I talk to them and they're – very much like, well, I don't feel qualified to talk about this because it is one percent different from thing. I'm like, just have a conversation with me. Like, it's okay. We, we just, you don't have to say that you know everything about it. Let's just have a conversation about it, right? And, and it's like, I, because I am in the language space, people are like, well, I'm a syntactician, so I don't really want to talk about language ideologies. So I'm like, oh my god. Um, so like, and then they wonder why sometimes, you know, people don't listen to us. I'm just like, you got to be able to to talk about things broader than that, not to pretend that you all know everything about it, but because being able to relate your specific studies to the world around you is the only way anyone's ever going to listen or, or that systems are going to change, you know, and part of the reason why I think it's important to also use accessible language via, via a podcast or even in the articles. Because like, if this stuff ever does bubble to the mainstream, they are only, they're only going to quote us if it makes sense to the public. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to either headline it incorrectly because we said a whole bunch of gobbledygook in our article. <laughs> or they're just not, they're going to misattribute or whatever. And we've seen it with all the medical stuff in the last three and a half years. It'll be like, studies show that this, I'm like, does it say that? Like what? What? What does it say? <laughs> and then there's a link in there, but nobody's reading the link, right? So I don't know. I just don't know a bunch of stuff, and I know uh we have to both, you know, go do our jobs in a second. But if you have sort of a, a sort of final thought that you wanted to offer on some of the things we talked about, whether it's about the the refugees themselves, or as ever happens on this show, getting sidetracked into discussing academia, systems, and change, uh feel free to offer it.
1: Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Nothing super profound. I just, yeah, coming back to this, um, you know, I'm a I'm a baby scholar. I'm like, you know, almost to the dissertation um, stage. So and I don't know if I'm going to stay in academia, but I just one thing that I have valued is that it is space to critically reflect on like, like constantly being, you know, having that space. And I think what's powerful for me is like oh like that doesn't have to be limited to academia and so in whatever spaces that I am and like I have that capacity to create spaces of like reflection analysis and action um and yeah I think that this seems like this is what the the podcast holds is like this reflection analysis and then like helping people kind of put their thoughts together so they can act on what they need to next. So, um, yeah.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. I think that, well, people don't quite understand and I understand why they don't understand because if you don't actually go through all this, why would you understand it? Is that what, when academia works in terms of, you know, doctoral programs, what well, they're training you in is, yes, they're training you in the systems of, like, how to actually do certain studies. And some of those things you're simply not going to learn unless you go to class, right? Like, I wouldn't have known that, right? Um, and different methodologies and the particulars of it and so forth. Like, And I'm not trying to discredit that as be, being valuable. But the thing that is really valuable outside of academia, because those things are specific to academia, is um, that, right? Because now I I feel the lenses I have developed you know, allow me to see things really differently. It is really annoying though sometimes because then I can't read a book sometimes without being like, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just like sometimes I just want to read a book. <laughs> right. It's just like,
1: <laughs> how do you open that part of your brain?
0: <laughs> I don't really know how to turn it off. Honestly, it's it's kind of it's kind of annoying. Which means that I sometimes have to go fully into like deep, deep fiction land and then I don't have to worry too much about it. Because like when I try to read a nonfiction book and I'm just like this person hasn't done their reading on racism. Uh <laughs> Yeah. So all right, Irene. So, uh good luck to you on your continued studies. We will we will actually continue to talk this time. I'm not gonna let you disappear for a decade again here. Um and uh and yeah, thanks for being on the show and uh, you know, it will uh hopefully be something that people find valuable when it comes out, which will be in October. Thank
1: you so much. All
0: right. Bye.